the Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we're offering all high school and college graduates in the class of 2021 a free one-year membership in the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership in the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org slash grads. And join us. We look forward to welcoming you to the club. You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at InforumSF. Good evening. I'm Charles Duhigg, a writer for The New Yorker magazine and the author of The Power of Habit and Smarter, Faster, Better. And welcome to tonight's virtual program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. Um, and it's really a pleasure to have you because this evening we are going to have a fantastic conversation with two of my favorite journalists, Elliot Brown and Maureen Farrell, who are reporters both at The Wall Street Journal and more importantly, co-authors of the brand new book, The Cult of We. We work Adam Newman and the great startup delusion. If you have gotten a chance to read this book, um, you know that it's amazing. If you haven't yet, you should definitely buy it. It's this investigative look into the rise and fall of WeWork, which, as you're probably aware, garnered quite a bit of attention, most particularly from Elliot Marine, who covered it like like uh, like white on glue. And it's this amazing story of the twisted startup culture that we're living through and how egos interfere with commerce and what happens when impulsiveness and growth and venture capital all come together and really a tale of the time that we're living in. And before we start, I, I want to remind all of you that um, we would love to make this into a conversation. And so please, if you have any questions or comments, please type them into the chat or comment section of however you're watching this talk. And we'll try and get through as many of them as possible. And we would love this to be a real dialogue. And with that, let's go ahead and get started. Welcome, Maureen and Elliot. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for doing this with us. Happy Excited to be here. To talk. So I have a huge number of questions for you, but before I jump into them, I want to ask one of, one question, which I thought of for a long time. So, so I wrote a piece for the New Yorker about WeWork, and and I spent and I spent years reading your coverage, and your coverage of WeWork was dominant. In fact, it was so dominant that right before the company was supposed to go on the road and start its roadshow, where it was going to tell investors um, about the companies and hopefully you know convince them to buy by stock in the IPO, you guys released an article about Adam Newman on an airplane um, moving across uh, international boundaries and using some recreational pharmaceuticals. I have two questions. Will you tell us what you learned? And more importantly, how on earth did you discover this? Like, because I will say, and I don't think I'm overstating this, your that article, your coverage, single-handedly blew up the IPO of WeWork with good reason. So, like, what happened? How did you find out about this? Um, I, I can handle that one. So, I, I'll say I was uh, for years obsessed with Adam and private jets, and it started, I think, in 2014 when I heard this guy was, or maybe even 13 when I heard that he was riding around on private jets as, and as the CEO of some rather small startup at the time with a big valuation, but it's like, I every mean, like the company's years away from profit. Why is he, he renting private jets? And so then as I kept sort of digging, I'd find all sorts of crazy things. Like they had a mechanic on staff that they fired out after like two days. And so then I would try to like confirm stuff like that. And you kept learning more and more about these private jets. And I, I really got into, it. I started tracking the private jet and <laughs> with, with, within the context of this, um, someone said, Oh, Adam would do all these things on jets. You know, uh, one person told me he, he like ripped down credenzas in, in an airplane and one rental company would, a jet rental company had kept having to take planes out of service because, 
uh, Adam would and his friends would trash them because they would get so drunk on them. Uh, and another complained about, you know, people uh, spitting tequila on the, the plane. So it, it was just in this context, someone's like, well, yeah. And, and you know, then this thing happened where uh, the, the key being that in Israel, they, they arrive and uh, hadn't finished the marijuana on uh, um, route. And so then it had someone decided to stuff it in a cereal box. Uh, and then the crew, which was of the plane, which was run by Gulfstream because it was a sort of loner jet, they were so kind of incensed by this that they just pulled the jet. And so then it's gone. And then, of course, Adam finds a way to go back to the U.S. on another private jet. <laughs> and you guys published this story saying this, that, that Adam just violated international drug laws by, and this is the CEO of a company that's, that's what, the most valuable startup in history at this point. It's about to go public. And, and you also published that he's telling people that he, um, he wants to be prime minister of Israel one day, or maybe president of the world, whatever that is, that he's going to be the fir- world's first trillionaire. And you published this article Right before they're supposed to go and tell investors, this is why this is why you should invest in WeWork. We promise it's stable. It's a good investment. When you call WeWork to say, look, we're about to go live with this article, what do they do? <laughs> well, so um, I sent them fact-checking questions on – I think I called them and said, I've got a lot of anecdotes. Um, I'm going to send them to you. The theme is nothing new, which is that Adam is erratic, but – but some of the anecdotes are pretty good. Uh, and then I send them the anecdotes and I get a call back uh, along the lines of, oh my God, this is horrific. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which I didn't expect. I'd sort of become inured to it. Um, Cause uh, yeah, like you said, it was the, the point of the article, which we, which had been in the works for nine months, kind of just knowing that there was a news event with, we were coming and knowing that Adam was this totally erratic kind of crazy CEO and the world should know that this the guy in charge of the most valuable startup is, is completely unlike vast, like every other public company CEO and, and super erratic and, and kind of crazy um, that, yeah, it was just kind of, we were waiting uh, for a time when everyone was paying attention. And then it just really became much, much more so than I expected um, really striking while the iron was hot. <laughs> And, and basically, you know, I was, oh, sorry, Maureen, go ahead. I was just going to say that we were, the two of us were teaming up on so many articles. Elliot, this was his article, as he said, had been working on it for nine months. And, but I was also, people were just coming to me trying to find out more. And there is a whole cast of characters that this spread to. You could imagine who, who were just trying to find out more about this article. It was clearly flipping out everyone in sort of the broader <laughs> ecosystem trying to take this company public <laughs> as it should have right because it, it it literally blows up this ipo i mean mm-hmm. I, when i talked to people bankers involved in this deal they said yeah we thought it was going to be okay and then we read the article and we were like nope <laughs> this is not, not <laughs> so okay so let me take a big step back so so we work becomes the most valuable startup in history 10 investors, venture capitalists and other investors pour $10 billion into this firm that essentially is just renting buildings and then, and then, you know, renting out small spaces in it. Nothing really new. Like, how did this happen? Why, why did this insanity seem sane to so many smart people? I guess a few different things. I mean, number one, Adam Newman was the most masterful salesman ever. He figured out right away that, you know, he sort of figured out who his client was. And as you say in your article, I mean, his clients were venture capitalists in some ways, more than the people filling up these rooms. Like he wanted to raise money and get this crazy valuation. And he also just hooked onto this idea that, and it changed every, it morphed year by year, but that every investor in the world wanted to get the next big thing. They wanted to tap into the next Facebook, the next Google, the next Apple, and get in really early. So he just sort of, you know, we we all often talk about him as kind of like a magician. He just decided to tell, tell everyone this real estate company was something totally different and somehow convinced what you would think are some of the most sophisticated investors in the world that this Real, this subleasing office space company was first a physical Facebook and then um, eventually like an artificial intelligence company. He can, he convinced them all and to 
value it and give him let him pour money into building this out even as he was losing money every step of the way so there was a we work in every urban every city all over the world and what yeah. I love yeah, – go ahead, Elliot. Yeah, I, I guess just a little more broadly, it was um, – you know, WeWork is by, by sort of far the craziest of this era. But but one of the things that, that we really wanted to, to emphasize to people in the book is that it, it was uh, one of the era. So, so you know, if you look at Uber, if you look at Casper, if you look at scooter companies, uh, th- th- there's all – it's all sort of the same effect where there was too much money trying to get into Silicon Valley looking for, like Maureen said, the, the next Facebook. And so what that leads – is for everyone to kind of suddenly believe the impossible about in where these companies are going to go. And so suddenly Uber isn't just disrupting transportation in urban America. It's a the Amazon of transportation that will disrupt walking and make its own flying cars and make its own robot cars. It's like nothing is enough. And so everything has this super high valuation and, and, and kind of fantasy dreams to it. And, and what I love about the book is, is it's the story of WeWork, but it's also the story of the period that we're living through. It's an, it's a, it's a study and an investigation of not just this company, but how did the world, how did America, how did Silicon Valley and commerce allow this company to exist? And in much the same way that, that James Stewart's den of thieves is like this portrait of the 1980s. This, the cult of we, I think is a, is a portrait of the period that we've just lived through. And and everyone in Silicon Valley is smart, right? Like all these people who poured $10 billion into this company, they're all smart people. They all, all, got, all got MBAs from fancy, from fancy um, schools. What is going on more broadly that you think makes people willing to suspend disbelief in the way that they clearly had to when they met Adam Newman? I mean, I think that seems like just the the key question. And I mean, it it was a little bit different every step of the way. Um, And it it was just sort of mind boggling every step of the way. Like it was at first it was the venture capitalists. Then it was these sort of sober mutual funds that, you know, they're like bending over backwards for Adam Newman, making sort of nonsensical decisions, um, overriding their analysts. Every step of the way we would see these you know, the people who could write the checks, willing to suspend disbelief. Somehow it was some magical combination of Adam Newman salesmanship, this private capital, so much private capital chasing this one big idea, something like something that was going to blow up and explode into this giant company. And yeah, and then these people that were willing to just jump all in with Adam, even as time and time again, you'd watch their analysts say, huh, the numbers don't make sense. Like we're looking through this, Adam's making all these, you're hearing all these predictions, but if you look at the past and you look at where they are now, it's sort of impossible that this could work out. And then time and time again, the people who'd write the checks would just override their, their, the people who worked for them who were actually looking at the numbers. (laughs) It's fascinating. It's totally fascinating. And, and just to remind everyone who's watching, if you have any questions for Maureen or for Elliot, please feel free to type them into whatever chat you have on your screen right now. We will definitely see them. You know, it's interesting because one of the things that strikes me is that this book is really also a, a book about the cult of the founder. And, and, the, and, and the, the story of the founder has gotten a lot of attention in the last 20 or 30 years, right? We talk about Steve Jobs. We don't talk about Apple. We talk about Steve Jobs and, and the charisma and the vision that he has. But both of you have been covering business and tech for a long time. It, has this been overblown? Like, have we corrected too far? Is, is, is Adam Newman actually a symptom and we work a symptom of a mass hysteria that, that believes too much in founders and not enough in other things? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's at the heart of of, of this whole saga and, and implosion. I mean, you have in Silicon Valley there, in particular in business, Silicon Valley just really loves going in herds and and uh, sort of chasing new ideas with small sample sizes. And so, what it's done, I, you know, and the, the, these are not small sample sizes by the, by the, by market cap or stock value, but but it's looked at Apple. Amazon, Google, and Facebook, and been like, well, all led by founders, uh, so therefore everything else should try to f- follow that 
phenotype. And so then they said, you know, the founder is this ascendant being. And, and this really started in the, the mid 2000s, uh, which was a real reversal from the old way of Silicon Valley in, in sort of the 90s when they would have founders found companies and then be like, okay, you've done great. We're going to bring in a professional CEO. So they really start kind of lionizing founders and, and talking about how they're, they're the near messianic beings. And so Adam steps into that. Now, the, the other thing that then happens is there's so much money that kind of separately but related, they actually give full control to the founder. So they're giving, in some cases, billions of dollars to, you know, certainly hundreds of millions to throughout Silicon Valley to these 20-something, 30-something, almost always male, um, almost always kind of first-time entrepreneurs, maybe second time, and giving them full control of what to do with that money. Uh, so you kind of wonder, like, of course this is going to happen at some point. I, I mean, of course someone is going to do something reckless with that money. Uh, but the, the, the kind of prospect of, of, the, of building the next Apple uh, is what drives it. Now, of course, the thing that people don't mention is that Apple and Amazon, neither of those founders had control. So they actually just, you know, could have been fired. And in Steve Jobs' case, were fired at one point uh, by the board. But uh, it, it doesn't matter because uh, Mark Zuckerberg has control. So therefore, I want control, too, is what they say. And then, then they get it. So and, and this, this brings up a question that Jack asked, who's watching the, the program, which is, you know, there seems to be this culture of eccentricity around founders, right? Like the the weirder you are, I've, I've heard um, some folks refer to it as kind of like um, – Asperger chic in Silicon Valley <laughs> that you want you want to come across as like being really like different and strange, proving that you think differently, and and I'm wondering, you know, it, well, let me ask you guys this: the first time when you guys met Adam Newman before he was he was the celebrity that he came to be, is he naturally as weird as he eventually became, or is that uh, is that something that he cultivated? Tell me about like what this guy was like when you first met him. Um, I, I probably go back first. So I, I met him in 2013 and uh, he was this total bundle of energy. So go into his office, he's like 40 minutes late uh, and then sort of summons me and then we go in and, and he's like, I want to show you something. And so it gets out of the laptop and can't figure out how to use the laptop because he's super dyslexic and he just calls his assistant. He's like, Stella. Uh, and, and she comes in and sort of presses play on, on QuickTime uh, and shows me this video of him on a boat and at the summer camp. Uh, and, and then he goes on to name drop, uh, you know, Ashton Kutcher and Rahm Emanuel and talk about how they're expanding everywhere. And it, it, the, the, he, he, he was totally charismatic. He was totally friendly and, and super engaging and sort of puts you in this, uh, time warp where he, like you're living in the future that, that he's presenting. That's it. I did not think that he was going to go on to be the CEO of a $47 billion company. I thought it's like, wow, this guy seems like an energized office space subleasing CEO of, of, of five location company. Um, so I, I think what we saw more, we can speak to this, like as time went on, the, the, the crazy got turned up kind of year by year. Yeah, and I met him for the first time in, uh, before the IPO as they were going in uh, 2019. And I mean, he's just, he's, I guess two things. I mean, he's, as Elliot said, a bundle of energy. He's all over the place. He's so tall and big. He just commands every room and he's, his arms are waving. But I think the thing that struck me, the first thing I told Elliot when I left the meeting was he's got charisma. He's got a lot of, he seems crazy, but he's also... Um, just very, he feels very warm in a way. I thought he was going to be this kind of like harsh tech bro and kind of a jerk. And he was totally the opposite. He kind of like hooks right in on you and finds some way to connect with you on like a kind of a personal level. Like he just, there's some, some way he can kind of like hook into everyone he meets. And yeah, his warmth, I think, kind of came through even as he seems totally erratic. And one of the things that comes through really nicely in your book is is how basically the kind of the um, the governors, which aren't really that strong to begin with, they get looser and looser, right? It starts as a as a little bit of like a, a party atmosphere, a kind of playboy atmosphere, but Adam begins pushing boundaries. He he begins, you know, the the 
he's using drugs in the office, is smoking pot more often. The the at the the culture of WeWork becomes increasingly frenetic. I know when I was doing some reporting about it, I was t- talking to one person who said that she found a a different used condom in the stairwell every single day for a week, and like said this as if this was like the least surprising thing she'd ever. But like people are having sex like crazy. That 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 you know he he begins living like a rich person. He he gets this car and this driver. He he punches I think his trainer at one point in the offices. Is that the real? Is that because? Is that the real Adam Newman coming out more and more and more? Or is that a product of the culture that surrounds him about, about meeting from, from um, SoftBank, Masa Sun, who's telling him he's a genius and he has to be crazier and reacting to that? I mean, I think it's definitely both, but even, I mean, even among tech founders, even among billionaires, like the way he lived was just seemed so insane by any stretch of the imagination. Like it just seems like he took everything. It was definitely something of the culture, but then he took it to a new level and his wife also, I mean, they had five children. They had nannies for each children. They had uh, like eight houses all over the world. They had the private jet. They were on, I mean, everything. They had the his surf instructor from Hawaii come and live with them and his family. And like they had nannies for those kids. Like everything was just <laughs> and then he had they what they rented two Airbnbs for the surf instructors for all there, the people. There were three Airbnbs. Three, okay. <laughs> <laughs> to go with their three Hamptons homes they owned. Yes. <laughs> and um, all the WeWork people would commute to, you know, take spend the like two and a half hours to write this their IPO per prospectus like it just seemed it almost was like making a it almost seemed like a joke like just how extreme he was living like you know almost like more trouble than it would be worth in some ways i don't know (laughs) yeah i mean there's this no you know the 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 notion of like money and power corrupt um and i think that 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 kind of happened with Adam, but it corrupted someone who was already corrupted by the concept of it. And so, you know, he, he wanted to be rich from, from day one living on a kibbutz in, in Israel, which is kind of an odd lesson to take from a socialist uh, community. Um, but but he, he was very dead set on that. And then sort of the more he gets, the more he wants and the crazier he acts. And yes, he's being pushed by these investors to in Silicon Valley and, and then also SoftBank, which is sort of the biggest Silicon Valley investor, even though it's from Japan, to push bigger, push harder. And that's like 100% the notion of what they sort of teach in Silicon Valley school these days, right? It's like, nothing is big enough. Everything needs to be bigger. Uh, You know, (laughs) revolutionizing urban transportation isn't enough. Um, And so he he embraces that, I think, in in the ambitions for WeWork, but also his sense of self where he is... I mean, literally seeing himself on this global scale where, where he's on par or above global leaders. And so he, we actually have a scene where he, he, he kind of snubs Justin Trudeau by, by canceling the prime minister of, of Canada, by just canceling something last minute on him and be like, ah, we'll, we'll reschedule it later. And he, he almost snubs Theresa May from, from uh, the UK when she comes to town. So it's just, and this was sort of nothing to him. He, he, he saw himself above these people. Yeah. And and I want to get into the the specifics of the of the WeWork story and kind of move through some of the timeline and the reporting that you guys did. But one more question about this this eccentricity and this kind of nature of of the folks. Of course, there's other situ- there's other examples that are going on sort of at the same time, right? There's Theranos. And in fact, um one of the one of the audience members Kowikri, I hope I'm saying your name correctly, it talks about Theranos and, and he's wondering about the checks and balances on these eccentric characters. The person running um, Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes, sort of presented her herself as an eccentric also because she knew that that's what in- investors wanted with a, with a, a uh, much darker outcome. She's now um, under indictment and awaiting trial. But tell me, is... What, do do we work and Theranos have things in common? Are they are they different lessons? What are your thoughts on that? Sure. So I the in, the really interesting thing I think when you compare Theranos to WeWork is you know Elizabeth Holmes was thought said she created something that she never did this blood testing uh, the ability to test blood one drop one pinprick and they lied about it they hid this all there there's all this secrecy in the company. Adam Newman, by contrast, it was all 
up to a point in plain sight. On the margins, there were definitely times in which he lied about things um, that we're aware of and other people saw. But basically, I mean, I think what's almost more mind-boggling about the WeWork story is that he didn't hide it. I mean, he would he would present this grand uh plan for where the company was going, but they had financials. They showed them to investors. They had historical ones. They had future projections. They didn't line up. And yet he he just kept on getting people to ignore what they could see in black and white. Um, so every step of the way, yeah, there, it wasn't fraud in the same way. Um, and yet, the, you know, these sophisticated investors just went along with him. I think that's, that's a big difference. That's really interesting. I, I sometimes use a, a cheesy bird analogy where uh, what Adam taught people to do was to look at a pigeon and see a swan uh, and sort of just imagine it there. Whereas, you know, Elizabeth Holmes was actually just lying, right? And, but Adam caused, caused people to delude themselves using actual facts that, that were real, uh, whereas she kind of makes up facts. So, so when I was talking, when I talked to people about WeWork, and you guys lived through this entire story, they talk about the time, the the growth of WeWork before and after SoftBank gets involved, the Vision Fund and Masasan. Um, tell me a little bit about the, you know, the when 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 SoftBank comes in and they make a huge investment. Tell me like what happened there and and what the implications of that were. Sure. So I guess what you want to think about, I guess to think about it, I mean, they had raised billions of dollars, but it was almost like Adam Newman and WeWork had kind of tapped out the globe before Masio Susson came in and he met SoftBank. This was in uh, 20, late 2016. He'd raised money from venture capital firms, uh, Fidelity, the mutual funds. Uh, he finally, he went to China. He kept on wanting to raise money to grow this company. And But it was getting to a point where almost every big check had been written already to him. There was no one really left to tap. So there was a sense in the board of directors and executives at WeWork that, okay, they're going to have to go public. There's That's like the only place that you need to keep on raising massive amounts of money to continue growing this company. This company, everyone wants to see growth, so, you know, sort of a vicious cycle. And... But then somehow, kind of miraculously, he meets Masa, the CEO of SoftBank. And it's, I mean, it's such a crazy scene. He meets him. Masa is, has come to New York from Japan. He's on his way to meet Donald Trump, who has just been uh, elected president. He's on his way to Trump Tower, and he kind of just drops by WeWork and meets Adam, goes on this 12-minute tour um, and sees WeWork. And he asked Adam to join him in the uh, in the car ride up to Trump Tower. So over the next half an hour, they basically sketch out and re they come up with this plan for four point four billion dollars. And I think a tipper Massa to invest in WeWork. It was sort of beyond anything Adam could have imagined at that time, beyond what anyone at WeWork could have imagined. And it also says just how kind of crazy this whole process was that, you know, in, in a 45 minute car ride, you could come up with a check of that size. But essentially that put this company where it could have been maybe reined in a bit, Adam, some of his, you know, his behaviors, the corporate governance. I think there was the sense that public markets would just do that, do the work that the board probably should have done and others. And instead, Masa comes in and it just the fuels the growth, but it also fuels the craziness in every way. And you pump $4.4 billion into a company and then, then that much more afterwards, he, he gives him more. And it's just any, any sense, it just the recklessness kind of in terms of where, the, what they would put, spend money on. It just, it, it really amped everything up. And this is the period when Adam starts doing really crazy things, right? Like buying a, buying a, a company that makes um, that makes waves and pools, like so that you can surf in a swimming pool or, or investing in performance mushrooms created by the, the pro professional surfer Laird Hamilton. Like, like it, the Excuse implication me, that's is... a coffee creamer. Uh, sorry, sorry, coffee creamer sorry. That, it, that it ends up going in. <laughs> sorry, go ahead. Well, and, it, and it's interesting because... Because this money sort of gives permission, as you guys were mentioning before, for, for the crazy to really come out. But it also sets this company on a path where going public becomes an absolute necessity at some point, right? 
Yeah, so so they had this this sort of magic way to ever um, say that profits were always on the horizon, and so uh, yet every year the losses would basically double. Uh, and and when you start at a certain number, like and you're losing one billion a year, then the next year you lose two billion. The next year you're on track to lose four billion. So like you rapidly you're going to need more money than sort of has ever been given before in the, the private markets. So uh, yeah, with with Masas have given given him this task to keep growing, and in one case. He really just incentivized him to only grow revenue and, and focus on that and not care about profits. Um, Adam started spending on lots of things that were, were particularly dumb, uh, you know, and, and talked about even kind of crazier acquisitions like buying Lyft and buying Sweetgreen uh, and the, the, the salad company because, you know, salads have a lot of symbiosis with offices. Um, and so they're, they're burning all this cash. And then uh, SoftBank, finally kind of gets cold feet. Uh, they, they had been totally gung-ho on WeWork and, and Masa had called it, you know, one of the world's great companies in the future and thought it was going to be worth $10 trillion, uh, but then kind of realizes his investors aren't into it. Um, his stock price is taking a, a, a real hit. And so he stops funding Adam. Uh, and so that suddenly leaves Adam kind of out to dry with this massive amount of, of money being lost every day. I think it was $3,000 a minute um, at, at the start of 2019. And so suddenly he's on this, this path to like, I need a lot more money and I need it in a really big way. And there, there's only one place that you can get that at that point. And that, that, that's an IPO public uh, listing. And, and, and the, this actually is a question from Susan in the audience. She says, you know, when you're, when you're, doing an IPO, all these people are supposed to come in and start giving you good advice, right? You have all these bankers who are supposed to start telling you, um, this is what you need to do and you need to clean up this and you need to, and the board of directors is supposed to be there to uh, to the adults in the room that suddenly start saying like, okay, look, before we sell this to mom and pop, we need to make sure that everything's on the up and up. And so the question that Susan asked is, so what happened to this due diligence that's supposed to happen before an IPO? Like, like, why does it take an article from you guys to stop this IPO from happening rather than all these people who earn tens of millions of dollars because they're supposed to, to step in and, and stop bad things from happening? It's a, it's a great question. And I think it just speaks so clearly to kind of the incentives, uh, the like, the sad incentives of the system, including the underwriting system. Basically, there's this uh, hope. I mean, it, it carries so much weight to be the lead left underwriter of an IPO, basically the bank that leads IPOs. And it has so much cachet, especially in Silicon Valley, to have been the person who yeah leads Facebook's IPO. And, and, and just to be clear, it's called lead left because they're literally on the left side of the cover page, right? They're, they're at the top of the left side of the cover page. And, yes. And it also means you get the biggest fees, right? Yeah, the biggest fees, the most coveted. Uh, yeah, it's the coveted spot right there. So what they, what Adam Newman did, like so many other things, he just really played the bankers off of each other. Basically, Till the bitter end. There's something in most IPOs that's called a bake-off. You invite the bankers in to come and pitch you on how your company can go public. I mean, one of the things we have in the book and we heard was, you know, they it was Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, and Morgan Stanley were the three that came in to pitch Adam and his team. And I mean, Goldman Sachs came in with a pitch deck and they were all telling him that it was going to be worth more than $50 billion, up to $100 billion. But Goldman Sachs, their pitch deck was comparing uh, Adam and the company. They had Lin-Manuel Miranda in their slides. They had a slide with Mother Teresa on it. <laughs> and they just they were comparing the company to Apple, all these tech companies and saying, if you could be a trillion dollar company. Um, so every step, but every step of the way, instead of giving, like at so many other junctures, but in, including with the bankers, instead of sort of saying, you know, people are going to be worried about this, and maybe they would at times, they would just kind of go along with what Adam and his wife, Rebecca, wanted. She took a big role in this. And what we saw was this really kind of uh, S1, this prospectus that they wrote that was sort of quickly made a mockery. I mean, everyone was, it became like a joke. 
And, and the S1 – oh, sorry. Go ahead, Elliot. I was just to say, um, uh, it, not only does history repeat itself, but, but uh, business books uh, written by journalists at the Wall Street Journal repeat themselves. So in, in Barbarians at the Gate, there's this uh, – you know, scene toward the end where the bankers of, of RJR Nabisco and, and, and uh, you know, are talking about this buyout and they are just arguing for, for hours between, I think it's Salman Brothers and, and one of the other banks over who is going to be lead left, uh, like in, on the tombstone um, for, for, for doing the merger. And, and they like the, the deal nearly completely falls apart because of this exact thing. And so um, it, the, the same thing happened. We, we uh, the, um, the, the ego was, was totally what was at stake here. And, and to the point where actually the fee on the IPO were going to be the same for Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan because WeWork was like, we should kind of camp this down a little. Uh, but, but they continue to just like obsess o- over who was going to be lead left. And, and I want to talk about that, the, the greed and the ego. Maureen, you had mentioned um, Rebecca, uh, uh, Adam's wife, and who belatedly was identified as a co-founder of, of WeWork. Like, tell me a little bit about her was she a real influence in the company? Sure. Yeah. She seemed like she was a huge influence on the company. And even just from the beginning, he met her right when he started the predecessor company to WeWork, Greendesk. It was a smaller company in Brooklyn that sort of did the same thing. And it just seems like from the minute he met her, I mean, she was she grew up uh, in the New York area. She was a cousin of Gwyneth Paltrow. She was very wealthy. She had these Hollywood connections. And from the minute he met her, it sort of, everyone says it just sort of amped up what he wanted and like the life he wanted to live. She kind of saw things he had never seen before. And yes, at the company, I mean, her role was a murky one. She, as you said, she was like retroactively made a co-founder at some point in 2014, 2015, but she took a bigger and bigger role. She would jump around to a lot of different roles in marketing and branding. They had a, a number of children, so she would leave for a year or so here at, at times for maternity leave. But by the end, it seemed like her role, she became more and more kind of obsessed with playing a bigger role. And she got very involved in writing the IPO prospectus. And I mean, some of the parts of the IPO prospectus um, that we've seen, some of the phrases that jump out at uh, have jumped out at us, like the dedication of the IPO is to the energy of we. <laughs> it's like something she came up with. She wanted to have a book dedication. Um, and there were just pay- there's money spent on these, like the photographs. They would do maybe like a hundred iterations of some of the photographs in the IPO prospectus that you know, you never hear about people spending that much time on. And, and people told me inside the company that when she would arrive at the offices, people would like scurry so that she couldn't meet them because she had this, this ability. <laughs> she would she would meet someone and say like, oh, you have bad energy. And then that person would get fired because they have bad energy, according to to Rebecca. It's it's a really interesting and it, I mean, it sounded to me like always this very toxic environment for for anyone except for the people at the top because you could be fired on a whim uh she has a lot of the the great quotes in the book where um she uh yeah the the, what one employee once told me was being around rebecca was like nails on a chalkboard uh and so yes you you cower but so she she would uh, she was constantly giving grief to designers uh who were working on oftentimes her own personal uh projects. And so one designed an office for her and she gets in and sees that her off her new office uh, on the sixth floor is smaller than, than uh, Adam's office significantly. And she says, my soul can't breathe. Um. <laughs> <laughs> and, and actually this, this is a question from the audience from Raquel who asks, you know, cause there is another co-founder, an actual co-founder of WeWork, this guy named Miguel McKelvey. Um, but he's really not mentioned much. Like he's not a part of the story. Why is that? Like, like, what is the role that Miguel plays, and and why don't we why don't we heap praise or blame at his feet? So he he co-founded it with Adam. He was an, he had a background in architecture. He he even he, what we've heard him say that he said is he he didn't like to be the center of attention. He liked to be near the center of attention. So he was always 
at the beginning, it seemed like he did a lot of work. And one of the big uh, sort of true innovations of WeWork was really the aesthetic and the architecture. I mean, it was, it's re they're really beautiful to go into. They've been copied many times now, but the glass walls and kind of the look of it. And Miguel was very much part of that, sort of seeing what this office space could look like. But over time, his role, he sort of started taking a step back. I mean, he would say to people, I like to start projects. I don't always like to finish them. Um, so he was he was nothing like Adam. He he kept his role, but just scaled it back, would just jump around to different projects on the periphery. It sounded like, I mean, at some point they renegotiated the split. He didn't want to build this big company. Adam wanted to make it bigger and bigger and bigger. So he said, yes, you can go. If it gets above a certain size, we asked, we've heard it was sort of an 85% 15 split. So he just took a smaller role. He took a smaller portion of the economics of the company and just kind of did what he could in different ways. But um, it's hard. Yeah, he didn't fight back against some of the, um, you know, negative things at the company, which I think frust I think a lot of employees really liked and respected him and at times wish he took more of a stand against some of the things that they were seeing Adam doing. But um, yeah, he was he was very much on the periphery. And I think kind of his minimal uh, role in the book, it's a sort of a reflection of that. So so they, they get this huge amount of money from from SoftBank and from Masason and and they start growing at a breakneck pace. It becomes clear that they're going to have to go public. The bankers are completely checked out. They're basically just trying to to you know get their name on the on the front of the the offering. They start writing, as you mentioned, the S one. And for those folks who don't know, the S one is like the prospectus for a company during an IPO. It's the thing that lays out what the company is. And and if everything had gone according to plan, we would be talking about what a genius Adam Newman is, and it would be one of the most successful IPOs of all time. But what happens? So uh, this is the the um, you know emperor's new clothes moment, the parade uh, where where everyone sees the reality. So uh, we work you know had been built up yeah as this this tech company, this disruptive startup for 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 nine years, and then they have to make all of their financials public. Uh, and so even though it had been written many times that they lost money, it had been. Wall Street Journal, but in other publications, um, even though we knew about all these conflicts of interest or some of the conflicts of interest that, that Adam had, uh, when you you put out this document, uh, I think they did it in a way that was just sort of so crazy uh, that that people couldn't ignore it. So so um, it, it hits in August and. Everyone, the whole world can just go to the SEC's website and see the scale of the losses, which were like $2 billion uh, the prior year and on pace to go even worse. Um, and, and you can see that this basic business doesn't work. Uh, then you also see that it's written in this crazy way where you dedicate it to the energy of we and it's sort of in, a little indecipherable what the business is. Uh, and then you have this incredibly long list of Adam's conflicts of interest. And so some of the stuff that, that we'd written about, about how he had taken out hundreds of millions of dollars beforehand and was just living this incredibly rich life, how he was buying properties and leasing them to the company. Uh, so like you could imagine, that's not a very, uh, you know, um, at arm's length negotiation with your landlord, if your landlord is your CEO. Um, and then, you know, I think one of the things that actually Adam would barely even know, knew about, but just the irony was so incredibly rich, was that he had initially trademarked the word we and now sold it to the company for $6 million in stock. So he was, he, the, you know, one of the more selfish people on the planet, as far as we could tell, was now profiting off the word we at a company named we. <laughs> and and so the, the public learns about this and, and what's the reaction? Like, like, I mean, cause we're not totally surprised by like greedy people acting in greedy ways, but what, why, why did this come as such a shock? I think it was just the sum total of all of these things. I remember talking to a lawyer that day who had worked on a lot of these IPOs and a lot of these like very founder friendly IPOs. And he I remember him saying there's basically like a menu you can pick from and they all could be, you know, maybe there's like 10 different things you could do to really give, give things to the founder versus the company. And he's like, 
they took every single one from this menu in like such an extreme way. I mean, even they changed the corporate structure. So the tax benefits would accrue to Adam personally. They like, and it just felt, and then his wife was one of the people who would choose his successor if anything ever happened to him. So I think it, it really was the sum total Plus, I think some of the just ridiculous language, they were going to elevate the world's consciousness and that they were losing. I mean, the pure financials were just terrible. No one could, you add those all up and it just seemed uh, like it, immediately everything turned. The like whole, a train wreck. Yes. And so let me ask, and I want, to, I want to ask what happens when the train wreck becomes visible, but at this point, there is still a board of directors for this company, right? There, There is theoretically, if the bankers aren't going to be the adults in the room, there is the last resort, which is the, the board, the people who can hire and theoretically fire Adam, the people who the buck is supposed to stop with. Adam's on the board. What does the board do and, and why don't they step in and make things right? Yeah, so the board had been um, – actually had a, a pretty good roster of smart people on it, uh, people there, the investors there from the early days and then kind of growing over time to include SoftBank representatives. And all along the way, they, they had often been pushing back against Adam and saying, you know, I don't think we should really buy a jet. And he'd be like, ah, yeah. and then, then, you know, fight with them and, and – and, They'd, they'd approve things unanimously because at the end of the day, he always had this sort of trump card of, well, I control the, the company at the end of the day, so I could blow up the board and put my own directors in or outnumber you. And sort of he always had this nuclear option. So in the end, they all decided to always vote for him, which is still a little perplexing to me. I mean, if they didn't like buying a jet, why didn't you just vote against the jet? And if five of them out of the seven or nine do it, then and you don't buy the jet. Um, so uh, they, they'd been acquiescing, yeah, for, for years. And, and then I, I think toward the end, they started to get more and more um, realizing that things were, were particularly unsteady and, and the, the stock wasn't going up again and again as it had. They get more cautious. So right toward the end, apparently what happened was Adam missed a board meeting. Now, he always was missing board meetings. You'd have just have his, his employees go in his place. But the directors finally were, were upset about this and like, we have to confront Adam. And this was like weeks before they collapsed. And so they, they, they told him, you have to start coming to board meetings. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think it, what, what the, the basically what was happening was they were blinded by uh, the rising stock price and being like, ah, what does it really matter? I, I, I'd prefer that, that we not buy jets and wave pools, but this guy can sell anything to anyone. And, uh, you know, as long as there's more people like me in the future, then we're going to be, you know, riding high. And as long as I get rich, I don't really need to worry about what happens mm -hmm. to anyone else. And, and, and the thing that's so delicious about this is that while all of this is happening, you guys are basically chronicling in real time every single thing that's happening in the Wall Street Journal. It's like you, I would like pick up the paper and see an article by the two of you, and it was like this like little burst of joy in my heart because I was about <laughs> to le learn about some new like crazy thing that just happened because, because the place is leaking like crazy. As far as I can tell, there's people calling you immediately after having <laughs> meetings with Adam. And, 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 you know, Crystal, who's in the audience, asked a good question, which is, is Newman or WeWork, are they, are they dialoguing with you? Are they trying to manipulate you? Like, what's, what are you hearing from the company itself as you're basically cataloging this catastrophe that's unfolding? I mean, I think as it got, like with each passing day, once this IPO prospectus was like flipped public and people, it looked more and more dire, it just felt like everyone was talking to us. Like, and you were, you know, there was the messaging was harder, I think, for to control because there was so many, so many different voices that we were hearing from that we felt like it was giving us a really clear picture and you know we saw that much more once we started writing the book but um i think people were freaked out people were so annoyed at adam newman at that point you know that they had just kind of woken up to the fact that he's gonna like crush this company potentially 
Um, yeah, it was this it was this really fun evolution where, you know, we had been like, I started covering them in 2013 and it was really hard to get any info and people weren't that skeptical. And then we'd just be on the calls with the PR people and, and, and other executives there and they'd be sighing at my questions. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, one time the, the top executive wanted to hang up on me and was like, this call's <laughs> over, like uh, two questions in. Uh, and, and these were like pretty reasonable questions. It's like, don't you need more money? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, why aren't you profitable yet? Um, and, uh, you know, I'm endearing. Why, why, who'd want to hang up with me? <laughs> so, um, so th- th- then, yeah, it's, it's really hard to get info. But as things start, as, as the, the tower's foundation is crumbling and it's shaking, uh, we, our jobs got much easier, uh, I think, in that um, people started just, like, messaging me on Twitter, being like, here's what Adam just said at a, a, an all-hands meeting. It's like, wow, that was a freebie. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you guys are getting all these leaks. Everyone's – the S1 has come out. Everyone realizes it's completely crazy. The company's crazy. The board isn't stepping in. It becomes clear that they cannot do this IPO, and and the company basically has to – has to put its tail between its legs and and like either figure out whether to declare bankruptcy or what to happen. And I imagine that because this is a perfect story of of business, that Adam gets his comeuppance. He gets all of his money taken <laughs> away. He has to personally declare bankruptcy and he slinks away, right? <laughs> Completely. Yeah, the company is about <laughs> they're going to run out of money basically, and Adam's Adam's left his role as CEO. He's essentially pushed out and there's this, they're racing to save the company and get an investment. And (laughs) exactly the opposite of what you say, we're chronicling all of this, trying to understand, like, like I couldn't believe it after Adam's, the IPO is called off. He resigns as CEO and someone, I just remember someone said, oh, they're going to be bankrupt in six weeks if they don't get more money. It was like unthinkable. They didn't even have money enough money to pay for layoffs. So yeah, there was a, a rush to raise financing. And um, I remember a, one morning very early, I get a call from someone who was in you know one of these rescue meetings. It was like, okay, the deal's done. They got the financing. People are going to be absolutely horrified when they learn the details of it. And this person gave me the details. And it was that Adam Newman as part of this package and basically to get him, when you, we look at founder control, it was to get him to give up his chairmanship of the board, his super voting control that would let him you know, vote against, ever have more power than all other shareholders. In order to do that, he basically got $185 million over four years as a non-compete consulting contract. Um, and a total package worth about $1.7 billion, which included what he was able to sell in shares, re- refinancing of a $500 million loan. Um, but it was just in, you know, exactly countered what, what should happen. This come up in, so it was instead he's, you know, that much. He's rewarded. Yes. If, if you get $1.7 billion for falling flat on your face, um, why not fall flat all the time? It seems <laughs> seems like the the best thing I can imagine. As, and, as one person put it to me, the, the, it's uh, it was like Theranos, except instead of ending up on trial, he ended up a billionaire. <laughs> <laughs> and and I want to ask about about WeWork today, but before I do, there's been a couple of questions that come in that are basically saying like. <sighs> How how can this happen, right? The, uh, Susan Susan Hopp had asked, "Who comes out of this with a recognized or acknowledged tarnished reputation?" Um, Crystal asks, "Has the board help, been held accountable for WeWork's collapse?" I mean, I think a bigger question here is: you look at the system where a madman came in. He was empowered by bankers and by the board to do crazy things. He took ten billion dollars worth of money. He built a company that had thousands of employees. And he ran it into the ground. He blew it up in the most spectacular fashion. And there's real victims, right? There, there are employees who thought they were going to make money on their stock options who, who haven't. There are, there are building owners who had these leases that became paranoid as to whether they were going to be honored. Let me ask you, do you, when you look at this example, is this a suggestion that the system is broken? Like this isn't how capitalism is supposed to work. Is WeWork an example that like something has actually gone wrong in capitalism? 
Yes, <laughs> it is. I mean, one of the scariest parts for, for us is, is that we haven't learned anything from this. It, it, there was a very brief period of introspection in sort of Silicon Valley afterward where people were talking about, maybe we shouldn't just give founders control without asking any questions and along with billions of dollars. And that lasted about five minutes. Uh, and so if, if you sort of fast forward to the pandemic and then what happened with tech stocks soaring back after that, things are, are, are really off to the races today. And, uh, you know, it's not in co-working companies, but, but you see the, these kind of flare ups of bubbles in all sorts of parts of the tech sector, particularly like electric vehicles right now, space companies. I mean, you, you have all of the same dynamics at play because this is the system that, that we have designed or, or are content with. Uh, as sort of members of this capitalistic society. We rewrote our, our epilogue like four times. It's like, first there was, there was a, oh, we've learned some lessons. And then it's like, eh, <laughs> it kept on getting worse <laughs> as we were going to print. And, and to Crystal's question, has the board been held accountable? Like, has anyone, has anyone actually come out of this, except for the employees, except for, you know, late stage investors? Has anyone come out of this worse than they went in? Has anyone been punished for allowing this bad behavior to occur? It doesn't, no. no. I mean, even the no. bankers who were like some of the key bankers, I mean, they've gotten promotions on this. The, I don't think any board member, I mean, perhaps reputationally, but also it sort of faded away. It's kind of incredible. Yeah, you can see with Masayoshi Son, it, it really did, it probably still lingers, um, it really did hurt his reputation because he'd been kind of de developing this, like, I'm a tech oracle. And then you sort of look back and it's like made some of the pretty clearest, like uh, some incredibly dumb decisions uh, in the second largest startup investment ever. And so I think he he was, wasn't able to raise a second vision fund from, from outside investors, which is the, the, you know, the world's largest investment fund. But, you know, I mean, that, that he had some good hits in, elsewhere. And so he's reestablishing his, his burn, you know, great reputation as a brilliant tech investor. So um, I think that, yeah, lessons here are, are, are relatively few. I, I, on the other hand, you could say, well, Adam Newman was really hoping to be a trillionaire. And so as a mere billionaire, uh, he's clearly been humbled. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure how humbling that really is. And, and I will say, I, I feel the same way. I, you know, this guy, Bruce Dunleavy, who was on the board, one of the early investors who, who was kind of seen as this intellectual and this, um, this guiding light in Silicon Valley and basically helped make a bunch of decisions that ran this company into the ground and doesn't seem to have suffered for it at all. His, his firm still made millions and millions of dollars, a, a thousand percent return on their investment. And and it doesn't seem like he's not getting invited to parties anymore. Um, and I think that that's kind of a disappointment, right? That like, I think our system only works when there are consequences for bad actions. I think that's why, you know, everyone's asking questions about who who gets punished for this, because if there's no punishment, why would anyone not just do this again? Um, which brings us to... to the WeWork of today. So, so two questions came in, one from Jack Cameron, who says, WeWork was up $3.2 billion in revenue in 2020 last year. Um, does this signify a return to their former glory under their new leadership? And, and Leanne um, asks, now that Adam is out, what are your opinions on the trajectory of the company? Adam Newman has been, left, has been pushed out of the company. It's now um, owned essentially by SoftBank. Um, although one part of the board is suing another part of the board to determine who has to pay who. But as you look at this company under brand new, under new leadership, what do you think it's going to be two or three years from now or five or 10? I think it's a little early to say, but it seems like no matter what, it's going to be a real estate company. I mean, they've hired a veteran of the real estate industry to run this company they're shedding all these, we didn't even talk about this, but they're not going to take over education. Like they've gotten rid of their education. They've gotten rid of wave pools. They're very much focused on office space, subleasing office space. So it's, it's unclear. I mean, there's a world in which right now, if companies do shed their long-term space, maybe WeWork could really take off and, you know, we'll, you companies will use WeWorks and want this flexible office space option more and more. So it could really kind of capitalize off of these new trends, but it's too soon to say, but I think no matter what it is a, like a real estate 
a more modest company, even on the bigger scale than it was than a, than other competitors. Hey, Elliot, you mentioned that you feel like um, we haven't learned that, that Silicon Valley and investors and and haven't learned any lessons from WeWork. But let me ask you: after both of you wrote this book, what are the lessons that we should have learned? Like when we look back at this period, ten or fifteen years from now, the same way that we look back at the nineteen eighties and we say. God almighty, I can't believe that that stuff happened. What are the lessons that we should learn from what, from WeWork, from this period? How, th- how ought things to change? I think this is a little more sort of philosophical, but I think one, one, at least for me, one of the takeaways that, that I took and, and sort of hope others would have is, is just how easy it is for, for minds to bend. Uh, and so how easy it is for us to just, in times of these bubbles and, 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 you know, uh, gluts of capital, how easy it is for us just to follow others, uh, essentially off cliffs. And so critical thinking is, is not that hard to employ. I mean, you know, I took an econ class in college and math and middle school and was able to sort of sit pretty early and see like, well, this is a real estate company and not a tech company. Uh, And then was looking at all these sort of, you know, smart minds in finance, be like, yeah, I guess it could, you know, elevate the world's consciousness. Um, So I think it's really important to stay grounded in reality. And I don't have a perfect solution on how to do that uh, because clearly money is what's driving this at the end of the day. Uh, But, you know, that, that's sort of the guiding light of this stuff. If something seems like too good to be too true, it probably is. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the true tragedy of this, I do think is that, I mean, there's one Adam Newman for better or worse. I mean, he was a visionary. He had the ability to you know, get people to give him money, but also to guide his employees to do things that they never thought they could do. I think few other people could have built the company he did, but what if the board had stood up to him and said, you know, whether it's voting control or don't have a private jet, that's insane. That's, you know, that nothing good is going to come out of that. Nothing good is going to come out of you borrowing hundreds of millions of dollars against your stock. What if they had like reined him in? I mean, could this have been, could you, they have channeled him to let him build this really incredible company? And I think that that's the system, as you said, that's sort of the, the broken system, if it wasn't in all the places each step of the way where the people should have stood up to him, maybe this could could have fulfilled some of its ambitions. And, you know, it was a pretty amazing company in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. And and hopefully because, because of books like the book you guys wrote that, you know, tomorrow and, and a decade from now, the next generation of investors and venture capitalists and board members and CEOs, that these they read this and it serves as a reminder of how easily we can start drinking our own Kool-Aid and how quickly we can become crazy and think that that craziness is an elevation of the world's consciousness. Um, thank you, you guys. Thank you to, to all of you guys. Thank you to the audience for your amazing questions. And, and before we, we sort of wrap everything up, there's this tradition here at the Commonwealth Club, which is to ask our speakers the following question, which is, what is your 60-second idea to change the world? And, and I'm interested, especially given how the front seat you guys had to the last decade, to hear what both of yours are. Maureen, will, will you kick it off for us? Um, I mean, can I just take one I don't know how controversial this is at this moment, but it feels like we're starting to see this, but we're in this global pandemic that could be over very soon. If every corporation, every restaurant, every, everybody mandated vaccines and masks, it just feels like such a simple moment and it's top of mind, not related to the book, but, um, feels like we could be out of this very quickly. And uh, I mean, corporate America, it feels like a, a corporate global corporations. Could, we're starting to see it. But if this happened quickly, it could catalyze change on a broad scale, I think, very quickly. Uh, so this is an unformed thought, but um, or partial answer. But uh, you know, one of my obsessions is is our sort of lack of, of truth and shared fact, and that's not just a political statement that that happens in Silicon Valley. That happens with meme stocks, where we, we lose track of real facts. Um, I, I think there's something, some sort of 
way of, of modernizing what we did with, with radio and TV, uh, where we said, okay, you can broadcast on our airwaves, but you also have to give an hour of, of news a day so people have a shared set of facts. How do you do that in the internet age? Um, that's where my thought ends. Someone else has to figure that one out. Uh, but, but some way of, of sort of pushing um, facts that, that are widely agreed upon at, at, at others so we have a shared sense of truth. I, I, and what I love about what you guys both said is that it actually does kind of tie into the book and in that you both said of, have said, look, we need, we need communalism, right? We need, we need something that takes a community and actually makes it a community, whether that means that we, we all have to get vaccinated so that we don't make our neighbors sick, whether that means that we have to force us to have the, at least some common reference of information so that we can all talk with each other. And of course, Adam, who grew up on a kibbutz, um, always celebrated community, always said that he called it we work because it was all about we until the the evils of greed and ego and craziness trickle in and destroy even the best communal instincts. But that being said, um, thank you to all of you. Because you are part of a community. You, you chose to, to tune in this evening and become part of this community and ask questions and support amazing books like The Cult of We, which you should all definitely buy. And I think that it is, that is the cause for hope that we, that we do come together as a community and we educate each other and we look out for each other and that we have such great authors who take the time to try and, and tell us what we ought to know. Um, so a, a huge thank you to you, Maureen Farrell, and to Elliot Brown for joining me today at Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. You should definitely go buy their book, The Cult of We, WeWork, Adam Newman, and The Great Startup Delusion. It can be purchased through your preferred bookseller. Tell a friend to buy a copy. And if you'd like to watch more virtual programs or to support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. I'm Charles Duhigg. Thanks for joining us this evening and uh, good luck in building a better world. You've been listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org.